What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. I'm joined, as always, by the boy, Nathan Cush. What's up, Nath? Uh, yep, good. How are you? You good? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> right, so we are joined today by our dear friend and comrade, Rob Griffiths. If you haven't listened to the, our previous episodes with Rob, um, then highly recommend you go back and listen to them because they've been very well received and they're very, very interesting. Rob is you know, a Marxist social theorist, a prolific author, the author of, amongst other books, Driven by Ideas, The Story of Aslef, S.O. Davis, A Socialist Faith, Killing No Murder, South Wales and 1911 Railway Strike, Granite and Honey, The, the Life of Phil Paratin, Communist MP. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> His latest book is Marxist Das Capital and Capitalism Today, which is an outstanding introduction to um, you know Marx's Das Capital, and it's updated with you know work on increasing financialization of capital. And he looks at Piketty and, and most you know famously, I guess, Rob is also the General Secretary of the Communist Party of Britain. Um, that's a very drawn-out introduction, but welcome, Rob. Yeah, pleased to be here. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Brexit, or more specifically, left exit, uh, Lexit, or people's Brexit, um, which is basically the policy of wanting to leave the EU you know, from the left, not the right, you know, of which the Communist Party and Rob in particular, has been, you know, a leading proponent of, you know, along along with, I guess, you know, the Labour leadership, uh, particularly John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn. And so we want to, we're going to talk about this today, Rob, and it's only, I mean, I don't want people to think that, you know, this is, um like, what what's the name for giving someone an easy, an easy ride, you know, just a bunch of communists that hate the EU asking <laughs> softball questions to mm-hmm. um, the General Secretary of the Communist Party. But, um you know, so what I, I'm probably going to do for the, most of it is affect a persona of you know maybe an ultra remainer, someone who's you know hysterical, <laughs> who's very into it. Maybe you've got your EU jolly flag, on, jolly on. Uh, pretend to drape, be a guardian. Reader. Yeah, try to get in the mind of a guardian, your average guardian reader. <laughs> You're going to drape an EU flag over your shoulders. <laughs> but it, but honest, on a, on a serious note though, I mean, a lot of our listeners are you know passionately pro remain, um, and we you know I I like to think I, I definitely understand why. We understand that this is a very emotionally charged topic for people. What we will say is that you know we get sort of pelters online for sort of talking about the EU and what we want to encourage and what, because, you know, there's a lot of people who, who a lot of people who are on the left who remain, um, and it's important, you know, we, we do talk about these issues through in a comradely way. So we're going to basically go through some of the, the key arguments against Lexit and for remaining in the European Union. But it might, it might also be worth me sort of talking about, um, talking about myself, obviously, no, but talk about my own, journey because i think one of my criticisms of the the lexit argument or the position is maybe maybe it hasn't grasped or appreciated the sense to which people are emotionally wedded to the idea of the eu people don't have don't necessarily have to have done much research into what the eu has done you know so like my, you know, myself i remember i was in france watching the euros in you know, 2016 after the referendum it was meant to come home and vote i would have voted remain but there was a strike with air traffic controller strike I couldn't make it. And I remember being in France and me and my friend were genuinely shocked and upset. And I just thought, well, this is a, a bad sign, you know, we're leaving the EU. I uh, I spoiled my ballot because I didn't vote. Oh, yeah, vote for yeah uh, I'd, I'd practiced all day drawing a picture of Cthulhu. Their, um, yeah, the devil the, god, is it? Yeah, oh, the god. Lovecraftian, uh, you know, god to end all gods. And then I, I successfully drew it on my ballot oh, and took a picture. Good stuff. Huh? So I was equally kind of emotionally <laughs> attached know. to it. Um, yeah. But you know, because you, know, you know, we'd been, you know, we spent two weeks, two weeks in France. We'd had incredible hospitality. We'd been hanging out with people from, you know, you know, all all parts of Europe. 
having a great time, having a laugh with them. There's no trouble. And, and yeah, I was yeah. younker. <laughs> Wolfgang yeah. was there. Yeah, um, but no, but I, you, know, I generally have to be, be honest. You know, I was there, and I was like, man, this is amazing. You know, it, it did sort of feel this you know, carnival party atmosphere where the Welsh were, everyone was loving us. And I thought, what have we sort of done? And you know, thinking back, even though I've always been, well, for the majority of my life, I've considered myself to be a Marxist. I've never, you know, I'd never really thought too much about the EU. I just, like a lot of people, I think, of a certain generation. I'm not saying you're not, you're of a different generation, Rob. But, um, oh, I probably <laughs> am, just about. Um, but, Rob transcends know, generations, doesn't he? But, but you know, people um, timeless. But yeah, as speaking as a young person, um, <laughs> speaking, as a young, speaking as a young person, you know, I think people have grown up, you know, traveling around Europe, you know, with friends and family from Europe and partners from Europe and so on. Okay, don't brag. But <laughs> loads of partners from Europe. <laughs> people have definitely sort of um, started to associate, or you know, in their in their hearts, you know, the EU with progressive ideals. And if you've sort of got generally left of center good politics, a lot of people just instinctively or intuitively without really researching it too much you just think the eu is a good thing and, and you know the way it's been marketed and it's sort of turned into this you know nice club where people get to travel around a bit you know and make friends and then that, and that's what people think about it and, and so i can completely completely sympathize with the remain position because that's what i was you know um it wasn't something i'd really thought about in any depth and i also have to be honest i didn't really hadn't really done any research into things like you know the the Troika and the imposition of austerity in Greece, um, you know, early referendums on the EU, you know, and I just, it, it's just almost, you know, Gramsci would call it a commonsensical sort of mm. thing. You know, you just, it just seems like a good and nice thing and, and people have become very, very attached to it. And I think it's also in Wales particularly sharpened almost because it's counterposed to the UK, you know, they've neglected us, the British state has neglected us, and the EU has given us all this amazing <coughs> you know, structural structural funds, and, and you know, and the EU stuff is everywhere. So it's it's almost why wouldn't you love the EU? And I, I definitely think that the you know the Lexit camp maybe hasn't really engaged with the emotional attachment people have with the EU because it's all. I mean, I would as as, I, as I'm sure that this podcast will essentially prove it's very easy to win the argument for the EU being bad, I think, on paper, you know, as a you know a neoliberal institution. But it's harder to overcome the emotional attachment that people have to this, the idea of it, even if that's not the sort of reality. And that's what we've sort of, um, that's what I think, you know, Lexers have to overcome. I'm also, I have to say, I mean, uh, I am uncomfortable with some of the language used by groups like the full Brexit, which has kind of descended into fairly nationalistic terms about the, they had a few mad passages in their latest, sort of article my point is i guess after reading about the eu and how austerity and was imposed on greece after a while you just sort of think well i don't you know this isn't the the amazing happy clappy uh social europe that i thought it was you know and, and nor was it designed to be but anyway that's enough uh rambling but i just thought it might be interesting to sort of give a, a give framework my, for the like yeah yeah i mean mm-hmm. you know the, because i because i because i'd like to think being a man of the people a man of the people that you know these th- that sentiment is, is shared by a lot of people you know you grow up you, you just grow up thinking well the eu is good um i don't want to stop being able to travel in europe and, and all these things um so rob it might be useful to just give us a potted history of the eu because it, it, again i really don't think this is something that people are aware of and i was under the impression that the eu was a project for post-war peace is that not there well yeah but before i show you just how awesome and succinct um i can be uh, you, you raised a couple of very interesting um, um, considerations in, in your opening remarks, Dan. 
Um, you see, it, it's uh, perhaps it's ir ironic, um, but it's it's those who support leaving the EU who are actually accused of all kinds of emotional attachments, um, of uh, emotional attachments to traditional British institutions, to the British Empire, to the 1950s, to the 19th century, and so on. And uh, whilst there are people like that, um, and, and one can only feel a little sorry for them in, in today's world, you know, of course it's a, it's a ludicrous idea that, uh, that there are many people um, in, the leave, uh, in the leave section of the population that are nostalgic for empire and so on. It's just absurd. Look, it has been perfectly possible to have um, public debates and discussions and disagreements between uh, leave supporters and remain supporters, particularly those of us on the left, I found it's perfectly possible to have a reasonable, comradely debate without having to resort to childish insults or silly stereotyping of the other side's point of view and so on. So, um, you know, I, I, I know from experience that that can be done. And I think it's very important that we try and continue to do that. When there are elements on both sides of the basic divide about whether to be in the EU or not, you know, who have descended into flinging around all kinds of stupid and uh, uh, offensive insults and, um, you know, and, and, and ridiculous stereotypes and so on. Uh, we have to move away from that and, and try and concentrate on the real issues. I don't mind a bit of emotional attachment, by the way. Uh, I've always regarded myself as being patriotically Welsh. I've also regarded myself as being an internationalist and a citizen of the world. Um, my boundaries, however, don't stop at Wales, but they don't stop at Europe either. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, although I'm perfectly happy to, of course, uh, accept that I'm a European. I've widely travelled throughout Europe. I have many friends and comrades in different countries. Um, uh, on a good night after a, a bottle of um, wine, I can even... You know, I can even uh, hold some kind of rudimentary political conversation in French and so on. So, um, you know, I'm certainly happy to be a European, but I think we've got to go much wider than that in the modern world. Well, the, the European Union, um, again, some of this is uh, history that has been buried under decades of myth-making and so on. The original project um, for uh, um, what was intended to become a United States of Europe began with the formation of a, the European coal and steel community. Uh, and that was really about rebuilding the, um, the coal and steel industries in France and Germany after the war on the basis of at least some measure of cooperation and so on. Uh, however, um, you know, bearing in mind that that the intention was to rebuild the French and German economies as capitalist economies, despite the pre-war pre uh, record of the capitalists that actually owned those industries, uh, some of whom in, in Germany uh, openly financed the rise of Hitler, and some of those in France who openly supported collaboration with the fascist occupation regime. Um, there were elements in both countries that didn't want to see those um, basic industries back then nationalized and uh, they felt it was very important to band together to rebuild the coal, the coal and steel industries the industrial base of much of Western Europe on the basis of capitalist ownership 
and that this could best be done through a European uh, coal and steel community. But alongside that, at more or less the same time, and as part of the same overall project, um, we also had the moves to establish a European defence community, so-called, and a European political community. And the European defence community uh, was meant to embrace the major um, countries of Western Europe. And of course, this was when the Cold War division of Europe was already in place. Uh, NATO had been established and the plan was to establish a European defence community uh, that would undoubtedly be about rebuilding military power in Western Europe. And that would only have been for one purpose, and that was to confront the socialist countries of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, it was very much a warmongering project, and that's why it was rejected. Um, it, it, uh, it fell because the French National Assembly in the early 1950s voted against French participation in the European defence community, and that was because of the large number of communist MPs and the large number of Gaullist MPs, who of course had always had been against the collaboration with the Nazi occupation of France. That destroyed the project for, for the time being um, for a European defence community, and that also undermined the moves towards an, a, a European political community. The main architects of this, mostly right-wing politicians and businessmen and uh, state bureaucrats, um, I think they clearly felt they had to rethink the approach. It wasn't going to be possible to establish this capitalist, um, anti-socialist United States of Europe all in one go, on three fronts at a time. So they concentrated then on building up the European coal and steel community and a European atomic energy mm. authority. Um, and then a little later in the 1950s, they made the moves to widen the economic um, uh, European project with the formation of the European Economic Community. That was the Treaty of and Rome. That was, was the it? Treaty of Rome in 1957, which makes no bones about the ideological basis of this of this prototype for a United States of Europe. It was on the basis of free market principles, the right of big capital to move its capital around the whole area um, uh, of the of what was to become the European Economic Community, their right to move goods and services across the whole area, their right to move labour across the whole area in order to exploit it more effectively. I was looking again, just to make sure my memory wasn't playing tricks with me, I was looking again at the, the Treaty of Rome uh, just a few days ago. If you read the section, although it says the free movement of persons in the section of the Treaty of Rome dealing with free movement of people, in fact, it is all about the free movement of labour. It's all about the ability of companies to bring workers from one part of Western Europe to other parts of Western Europe, which, of course, opens up the whole possibility of undermining uh, strongly organised labour movements, of undermining wages and conditions and trade unionism and collective bargaining agreements and so on. So I must emphasise the free movement of people um, is not what the Treaty of Rome was all about. It was all about the free movement of employed workers. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, that has remained the main focus. Now, of course, as a spin-off, as a benefit, if you like, um, it's made travel much much easier across, uh, across uh, Western Europe and now most of Europe and so on. 
But let's not run away with the idea that this was some wonderful, you know, ideal that motivated the EU from the beginning. It didn't. It's always been a project of European big business. And, you know, that is why the, the chief driving forces behind the whole European integration project um, have, not, have never been the parties of the left, certainly not of the genuine left. Every big business employees, employers organisation in the whole of Europe supports the EU project. In Britain, the City of London, the Bank of England, most of the big merchant banks, the CBI, the Institute of Directors, the British Chambers of Commerce, even the Country Landowners Association, all the big forces of capital support EU membership because it's their project. They wrote the treaties, they've decided the rules, they've drawn up the directives. Um, and uh, you know that provides really the, the main basis for the opposition of many of us on the left. Um, I don't believe for a second that uh, the Guardian or left Remainers speak for the left as a whole. In fact, uh, the Ashcroft um, polling survey, by far the biggest ever done on why people voted as they did in June 2016, shows quite clearly that only a bare majority, but a slight majority of those in Britain, 39% of the voters, by the way, which I thought was quite encouraging, but a majority of those who regard themselves as anti-capitalists actually voted leave in the referendum. And I think there were very, very good class and left-wing and internationalist reasons for them doing so. Putting my jolly on hat on again. Um, I mean, obviously, You're blue and yellow, starred. <laughs> and bearing in mind the the responses that I've had, you know, when I've tried to sort of talk about, you know, the Treaty of Rome, would it not be understandable for the French, let's say, who and other people involved in the reconstruction of Europe who've been through occupation, you know, this huge sort of continent-wide trauma, would it not be, you know, reasonable for them to want to rebuild and st- build links? Because I, I think, I think in written also in somewhere in the, in the European Coal and Steel community, there was a mention of peace, I'm sure there was, and it was like peace through business or something along those lines. Oh, well, we've had, the, we've had the proclamations of the peaceful intentions of, uh, of everything from NATO to the European uh, defence community that, that was scuppered right up to the Treaty of Lisbon and all the uh, Protocol 10, which is all about the militarization of the European Union, of course, they're always accompanied by protestations that it is all about, you know, securing the peace and so on. But you mentioned the French. Again, like every country, the French people are not homogeneous. The main challenge for business and the political right in France for most of the decades after the end of the Second World War was to prevent the communists from taking power. And indeed, across, be across Europe as well. In, in, 19, in the first French elections after the end of the war in 1945, the biggest party was the French Communist Party. And the European coal and steel community and the associated communities were and an important part of, of their design was in order to ensure that should France ever have a communist government or a communist-led government, it would be enmeshed in these free capitalist, free market, private ownership treaties um, and aligned as far as possible um, with NATO and so on, although that's taken a lot longer to organise. I mean, there is an interesting counter history there, isn't it? Or alternative history, or rather, what would have happened 
for people who haven't really read up on the immediate post-war period, you know, in Greece and Italy and in France, as you said, because the communist parties had been the vanguard of the anti-fascist resistance, you know, they enjoyed mass popular support mm. and huge, you know, dirty tricks campaigns were used in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War to ensure that communist parties did not get into power across well, it, Europe. It was even more widespread than that. There were also very powerful communist parties in the Netherlands, mm. and I think their leader was assassinated a couple of years after the end of the war, and in Belgium. So it wasn't just the three major states. But again, it needs to be understood that the communist parties and the left socialist parties, um, for most of the post-war period, have accordingly have actually been opponents of the whole European project because it's not the kind of internationalism, it's not the kind of Europe that many socialists and almost all communists have ever wanted to see. But you're right about you know rebuilding links. I mean, that's important wherever you are on the political spectrum. Economies have to interact with one another. Trade has to take place. Travel has to take place. These are all important, and there's a positive side to all of that and so on. But as far as working-class organisations are concerned and left-wing organisations, we've never needed the European Union in order to build our links between ourselves. Um, you know, the European Transport Workers Federation, the European Federation of Construction Unions, you know, all of the other examples of trade union and political collaboration between the workers and socialists and communists of different countries, all of those links and institutions have been built up completely independently of the European Union. We didn't need a big business free market organisation to tell us you know, that we needed to forge links with one another, combine with one another, show solidarity with one another. That never, I mean, that's in fact, the, the European Union in many ways has acted wherever possible to undermine that. That has been done as a matter of necessity. It's been a great advance. And of course, that kind of cooperation between peoples and workers and their organisations, that will outlast the European Union and it'll certainly outlast any kind of Brexit. I mean, I was going to sort of save this question for the end, really, but I may as well sort of pose it to you now, Rob, while we're on the mm. topic. I mean, I remember going on social media and saying, well, what has the European Union done or achieved? And people just will say peace in Europe, you know, in particular, no war between France and Germany, because if you look at the history of Europe, I mean, I guess historically that was that they've been the main two belligerents. Um, and that's what people say. You know, they'll say it's achieved peace. But I mean, internally, it's achieved achieved peace in a you know in a continent which you know had hitherto been you know riven by conflict, not just in nineteen fourteen to eighteen and you know nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five, but you know for years and years and years, almost in continuous warfare, you know, for the all throughout the previous centuries. And you wonder, you wonder, you know, peace in in Europe does correlate with the foundation of the EU. There hasn't been a a mass well, internal conflict. Yeah. A, a whole number of quite yeah. profound developments have to come together before you're going to see a major war between two very powerful states. Um, uh, no, you're quite right. No, there hasn't been a war between France and Germany and so on. Is that due to the EU? Well, I think partly it's due to the ruling classes in those countries having a common enemy for most of the post-war period. And uh, that was uh, that was the socialist states of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, um, and uh, they organised in NATO in order to um, in order to prepare uh, for any confrontation with that common enemy. And, and again, don't forget this was this was all kept going as well by 
the Cold War mythology that after losing 28 million people, the Soviet Union couldn't wait to lose a few score million more by pointlessly invading Western Europe. I mean, complete nonsense. But this was all part of the Cold War myth. And I think part of the Cold War myth, you know, is is that uh, the countries of Western Europe would have been slavering for war against one another uh, if it hadn't have been for the coal and steel community and the EEC. Don't forget as well, the leading states of the uh, of the EEC and now the European Union are powerful, have been colonial and imperialist powers themselves. They've exported a lot of their wars to other parts of the world, very wisely from their point of view, of course. Um, but that's what they've concentrated on doing. And they have combined together very often in order to pursue that. And that's very much the case today with the expansion of NATO, uh, the banging of the war drums against uh, Iran now, um, you know, what we've seen in the recent decades, European involvement, the involvement not just of French troops and British troops, but German troops, German armed forces and so on, in a whole number of wars across uh, across um, Southern Asia, uh, North Africa and the Middle East. Um, so this is not a peaceful Europe. They might not be fighting each other, but by God, we've come up with some pretty good excuses, utterly feeble excuses on one level, but they've come up with um, what they imagine to be convincing cases for going to war in a whole lot of other places. I mean, I guess in the long sort of span of history, the from the 50s to now is a relatively short period of time, and there's the quote by Lenin, you know, on the slogan for United States of Europe. Imagine. Imagine, yeah. <laughs> um, but he says, you know, the United States of Europe under capitalism is either impossible or reactionary. Of course, temporary agreements are possible between capitalists and between states. In this st- sense, a United States of Europe is possible as an agreement between the European capitalists. But to what end? Only for the purpose of jointly suppressing socialism in Europe, of jointly protecting colonial booty against Japan and America. So in many ways, it is what we're seeing in the is a temporary agreement between yeah. France, Germany. Very prescient words from uh, Lenin, and of course written in the midst of the of the great imperialist First World War. You know, when I think most uh, many people would have thought that the idea that France and Germany could actually combine together, um, however temporarily, I mean that must have appeared pretty outlandish at the time. But of course, it's true, and that uniting of France and Germany in a in a European project has been exactly for the purposes that Lenin outlined, not carried out in exactly the same way or even against the same countries, but uh, combining together to more effectively exploit uh, the third world in particular, while the EU has been a leading force in the drive to privatise the water uh, industries of Africa and other parts of the world and so on, to suppress socialism at home, well, certainly the free market um, provisions the monetarist provisions of the basic EU treaties, you know, are all about serving the interests of the of the capitalist class, not the interests of the working class. Isn't that one of the clauses of, uh, you know, uh, sign up IMF is that you uh, kind we'll, of hand over your... We'll get to, we'll, I'll tell you what, we'll get to the clauses and the specific treaties later because those are the... Mm. Uh, I mean, as, as a general thing, it's just, as Rob was mentioning, like under developing, um, underdeveloped countries, oh, it's yeah. just like, you know... Yeah, you can have this money, provide new, uh, put in these uh, neoliberal yes, boundaries. Indeed, we'll continue with our part. We'll continue with our part of history, um, and it might be worth starting with Britain's 
membership of the European communities. Mm. You say in the pamphlet, you know, the Edward Heath Tory government took Britain into the European community. So the European communities was founded in 1965. Heath's government took Britain into the EC in 1973 without a referendum, unlike Ireland and Denmark or Norway, which mm. actually rejected EC membership. The Labour Party and most trade unions opposed Britain joining. And then Harold Wilson's Labour government won an election in 1974, and one of the manifesto promises was to renegotiate EC membership and put the question to the people to decide. So the 2016 referendum is not the first referendum we've had in Europe. Um, mm. The first referendum on Europe in the UK was actually 1975. And interestingly, and again, I don't think people, a lot of people will know this, you know, in the 1975 referendum campaign, the TUC, most trade unions, the Labour left and the Communist Party urged the electors to reject the EC as a boss's club um, and also applied Cymru and SNP. The SNP played a, a very much a leading role in arguing that the UK should come out of the EC and saying in particular that it was undemocratic, it was centralised and that Wales and Scotland would be marginalised, which is a bit different from the position now. But obviously, you know, the uh, Wilson um, and the right-wing press and um, most of the cabinet and most of the Tories and Liberals campaigned to stay in. And, and most you know, of the big business. And they stayed in. So that was the first one. And then you write in this thing that, you know, um, most of the fears that the left had about EC membership materialised. And you said this had a, a, a very negative impact on the manufacturing industry in particular. Yeah, don't, I mean, don't forget, during that, you know, before we had that referendum campaign, you, as, you, as you've already mentioned, Dan, there was, a, you know, this sort of sham renegotiation, a bit like the sham renegotiation that, uh, that uh, Cameron and uh, Chancellor Osborne engaged in before the 2016 referendum. It was never a sincere effort to change the European Union or even to change Britain's relationship uh, with the European Union while remaining inside it. It was only a cosmetic exercise. Big business was uh, totally in favour of almost all of big business, not quite all, but most of big business was in favour of remaining in the EU in 1975. And most of big business likewise was in favour of remaining in 2016. I think one of the big differences, well, there were several big differences, one of the big differences was that the Labour right was mostly, well, yes, just on balance, was more in favour of staying in the EU in, in, in 1975. This time around, in 2016, the Labour right was much bigger and much stronger in the Labour Party. But what also had changed between the two referenda was that the um, a section of the left uh, had moved away from the clear-cut left-wing working-class internationalist case against the EU. And instead, after a period of, don't forget, defeatism and mm. doom and gloom in the 1980s and early 1990s, in that spirit really of defeatism and hopelessness and on the basis of bogus promises from the EU and its president back then, Jacques Delors, that a social Europe would be built, that the section of the Labour left and the trade union left uh, has switched positions and now has all kinds of illusions about the supposedly progressive nature of the, um, uh, of the EU. The other big difference, which you mentioned, of course, was the fundamental change of position of uh, Plaid Cymru and the SNP. I mean, I was a research officer for Plaid Cymru back in the 70s, and we produced a very substantial document on just about every aspect of the EU's policies and uh, history back in the early 1970s. 
and uh, that made, I think, a compelling case, very much along the lines that Tony Benn was putting and Michael Foote was putting in, in Britain as a whole. Um, but that put the case against EU membership. Um, but all of that has changed. Applied have, um, well, they've actually moved away from a position of believing in real sovereignty uh, for the people of Wales. They're apparently content now that um, staying in the European Union uh, would mean that many powers will remain in Brussels, whereas even under Theresa May's feeble withdrawal act, uh, I think it's something like 60, 64 areas of policy would see powers transferred from Brussels to the National Assembly in Cardiff, and Plaid Cymru are now saying, oh no, we don't want them, we'd rather stay in the EU. Uh, which is quite extraordinary for a, national, a supposedly nationalist party. They don't believe in sovereignty anymore. They um, are quite content that whole important areas of economic and social and fiscal and other policies should remain in Brussels, which is where they will stay forever, of course, uh, for as long as the EU manages to survive. So that's been a, a pretty fundamental change. And, uh, you know, Wales remains... Um, unfortunately, a marginal economy on the edge of the European Union. Um, the European Union uh, is, remains the centralising force that Plaid Cymru always said it would, and uh, nothing in that respect has actually fundamentally changed. You're quite right, we have seen a substantial decline in the share of uh, in industries, productive industries share of the British economy and of the Welsh economy for that matter. Um, we've seen a, a positive balance of trade with Western Europe turn into a huge deficit. Expl explain um, that, please, Rob, for those of us who are not... Uh, well... Because <coughs> a, a lot of the analysis of... Uh, I mean, there's been a decline of heavy industry generally um, uh, across much of, the, uh, much of the most developed parts of the world, that's true. But that decline has been steeper and swifter um, in Britain and steeper and swifter still in the old traditional uh, industrial parts of Britain. So in Wales, we have seen um, this huge decline of heavy industry and productive industry and manufacturing industry as a share of the overall economy. And uh, the kind of tools that we once had available in order to counteract that, quite powerful tools like controls on the movement of capital, controls on investment, the use of industrial development certificates and so on, all of that has been dismantled in line with EU competition and right of establishment policy and so on. So you've actually um, you've actually written about you know the EC you know doing the seventies and some mm. specific. So you said the system of agricultural support introduced by the Labour government was scrapped and the common agricultural policy was yeah. brought in in this period. What I found most interesting, you said Britain's effective regional policies which restricted industrial and office development in more prosperous areas and directed capital to more distressed ones, were dismantled in compliance with EC principles of free movement. And then you also say that um, the common agricultural policy bought surplus from produce and stockpiled or destroyed it. Can you tell us a little bit more about common agricultural policy? Well, yeah, I mean, in general, you know, from being one of the poorest uh, areas of Britain, Wales is now one of the poorest areas of Western Europe, I you know, that's, that doesn't appear to me to be a great achievement. I think the difference is that whereas in the past Plaid Cymru said the answer is not to, you know, just to beg for more money, uh, but to take real powers into our hands here in Wales, now Plaid's policy is to hold out 
the biggest possible begging bowl and to thank, to thank the European Union for anything that it might care to put in there, mm. even though it actually only amounts to a fraction of the public money that, uh, that is spent in Wales. The common agricultural policy, again, there was a time when the farming unions, well, not the NFU because it was dominated by the big farming interests of the south and east of England, but the Farmers' Union of Wales and a lot of small farmers and so on were very clear about the harmful impact that the common agricultural policy would have. And that harmful impact is not just on farmers. It was a long time before we got any proper support, any kind of support for sheep farming, for example. But of course, the impact on, on consumers, the dismantling of the, of the milk marketing board, again, a direct consequence of being in the European Union. That was, that was, as far as the EU was concerned, that is rigging the market. You know, that's interfering with a level playing field and free market forces. So it's been dismantled. That's created a real crisis in the dairy industry. But so also the CAP meant that um, instead of government grants and loans supporting investment in agriculture and uh, helping to keep down prices relatively uh, low for the benefit of, of consumers of agricultural products, instead the EU policy... Uh, has been to engage in intervention buying for a long time. And that's why we had all these food mountains and wine lakes and so on. Pushing prices up, taking products out of the market, making the goods more scarce, Mm. pushing up the prices. And then, of course, we introduced VAT. That's a European Union tax Mm. that was introduced in Britain as part of the preparation for being in the European Union. And again, what has VAT done to food prices and so on? So CAP has been, a, I think, overall has been a bit of a disaster for many farmers. It's been a bit of a disaster for agriculture and particular sections of agriculture. And it's also pushed up prices together with VAT. It's pushed up the price of foods of food in, in the shops. So, you know, I don't even think CAP is certainly not a success story. And even now, a large proportion of the EU budget, it's still just around half of the entire EU budget, goes on this common agricultural policy, which has neither rescued agriculture from decline, nor helped to ensure that people can get food at decent prices in the shops. I was cracking up because, um, you know, it says that, you know, the European Court of Justice and the European Commission, you know, forced the Tory government to dissolve the milk marketing board in 1994. But then I was just like, do you really need a board to market milk, isn't it? Like, um, mm-hmm. it sells itself, that stuff. It's, uh, <laughs> it's delicious, you know. It's, uh... Well, what, it, no, <laughs> what but, did it do with the milk marketing did, board? It gave a secure, um, it provided for secure collection and distribution of milk to a, to a secure market. And it meant reasonably low prices in the shops, but it also meant real security of, uh, for farmers. And it meant at least a half-decent return for the milk that they supplied to the board. Now, increasingly, dairy farmers are at the mercy of supermarket chains who squeeze them, who drive them into the ground in order to maximise their own profits. Now, that's not an improvement for anybody. So this, I mean, this is an early example of one of the, I guess, the main central arguments of, you know, people's Brexit, but we'll we'll get to that in a sec. So, So Jacques Delors... This is the 80s, I guess. Mm. Delors starts talking about the social Europe. Um, this is during the time that the Labour Party and most of the left have been in the wilderness, you know, because it's been very traumatic for the left. And the, as you say, this is the time where they they change fundamentally away from this sort of... Yeah. Well, the, yeah. although a small... The, you know, the Benite left remains Eurosceptic, but the majority of people like the TUC start to... 
But yeah, well, well, what what yeah. did what did the laws even what did this what happened? Because people still say this all the time. Social Europe is possible, you know. What was that's, the that's idea? That's the Varoufakis. Uh, what was the idea, idea that yeah, yeah. the laws was saying? And, and well, what, Jacques Delors, in particular, who is the you know um, the president unelected, of course, as all <laughs> presidents uh, are. Um, but Jacques Delors came to the TUC Congress in 1988, I think it was, and said, "Look, I know how unions and workers are suffering under the Thatcher regime and so on, uh, but don't worry." Uh, we are planning, uh, as part of our preparations for a, a real single European market to be launched in 1992, we're going to ensure that there's a strong social dimension. So all of those guarantees of employment and conditions and decent treatment and so on that you as workers and unions uh, yearn for and have been taken away from you to some extent by the Thatcher government, we are going to guarantee that they will exist throughout the European Union. And because, if you may, you may remember this, I mean, no, you're probably too young, but um, <laughs> Any you know, amnesia. After, after Thatcher had won several general elections um, and we'd already seen the first of the anti-trade union laws, which the European Union, by the way, has never lifted a finger to protect us from, it was being said by, by the time that Delors came uh, to Brighton, if I'm not mistaken, in 1988, it was being said quite seriously in Britain that there will never be another Labour government. It will be mathematically impossible, never mind politically impossible, it'll be mathematically impossible to ever see a Labour government. That was being seriously argued. Could you argue that, that they are correct in saying that well, in terms of new Labour? Well, yeah, yes, it's arguable. Well, in its first term or two, it was a slightly social democratic government, but it moved away from that. But the point is that when when those unions met in, in that TUC conference, it was in a spirit of, of despair yeah. and defeatism. And so now they have this powerful figure saying, we are going to protect workers' interests, we're going to treasure the role of trade unions in a social Europe and so on. And, so did and, the... and they dropped their opposition, not all unions, but most unions dropped their opposition to the EU and they swallowed it. And in return, I mean, did, something must have happened in the EU where they, did they start to introduce these amazing rights and, well, and things it, like that? Well, it turned out, of course, that the increase in in so-called social rights and uh, and so on. I mean, it was, I'd say it was on paper. It wasn't even on paper, actually. <laughs> you know, it, it, it turned into very little. We did have, we did have some social legislation for a short mm. period. We certainly had some improvements in some environmental matters, but this was nothing like the, uh, the social revolution that Jacques Delors had, had given the impression would be created. And as it turned out, we had the Single European Act, we had the 1992 Single Market, overwhelmingly to the benefit of big business. But the, the Delors Social Europe, this is the genesis of this notion that we hear particularly in Wales, that you know the EU is the one that's given us all these... These rights, you know, these amazing rights, and and, and your know, Westminster never has given anything. Well, and... look, if I'd have taught that when I was a history lecturer, you know, I would have deserved to have been sacked. It's complete and utter nonsense, and nobody with any knowledge at all about the history of the labour movement in Britain or in the other countries of Europe would, would entertain that seriously. You know, almost all of the trade union and employment rights that we have in Britain are as the result of our own struggle, our own people, our own trade unions, usually Labour governments. You know, that is what has won us. When we, the Employment Protection Act, the Trade Union and Labour Relations Act, 
the Health and Safety at Work Act. These were all fought for by the unions. And uh, they were brought in, as I say, in most cases, the Minimum Wage Act, the Working Time Act. These were brought in by Labour governments um, as a result of trade union campaigning, trade union pressure and so on. The idea that all of this has been bountifully handed down to us by the European Union doesn't bear examination for a second. And it's true as well in other countries. You, can't, you really would not get away with telling the French working class and its trade union movement and its left parties that they have the European Union to thank for the rights that they've won. That's, it's complete fantasy. Now, could a social Europe be um, a realistic prospect for the future? Could we really change, transform the European Union into something that serves the interests of workers and working class organisations and the people generally? Well, again, I'm afraid, you know, if that was a if that was a mirage in 1988, I mean, it's become a cruel fantasy um, by now. Who is going to enact that? Most of the communist and workers and left socialist parties in, in uh, the European Union, um, those that had any illusions that, that the European Union could be transformed fundamentally, have almost all of them have dropped it. The social democratic parties that have been quite strong believers in this fantasy the result of their decades of support, almost unquestioning support for the EU and for austerity and privatisation policies as well, it has to be said, we've seen their support plummeting in one country after another. The social democratic parties have disintegrated in a whole number of Western European countries. They've never really got off the ground in Eastern Europe. And the only ones that have weathered the storm at all have been a couple of the parties in a couple of the Nordic countries where they have tended to take a slightly sceptical view of the EU, in recent years anyway. The Portuguese socialists have survived. Um, they're in alliance with the communists and left-wing environmentalists and they're coming up against the European Union on a whole number of questions. And most, most recently in Spain, where the Spanish Social Democrats have emerged as the largest party in the recent elections. But again, uh, they are going to have to rely on Podemos, which includes other left parties, it includes the Spanish Communists and so on. Um, but in other countries, the traditional Social Democratic parties, in Italy, in Greece, in Germany, in France, their votes are down to single figures mm. in percentage terms. So who is going to carry out this transformation? of the European Union in a progressive direction. It's the, the force is simply, you could have argued with some credibility for some brief periods in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s that it might be possible to assemble the coalition necessary. But even then, you're going to have to elect left of centre governments more or less simultaneously across large parts of Western Europe in order to even make that remotely possible. It's simply not going to happen. We'll talk about the institutions that bring the EU together in a sec. It's it's worth it's worth talking, Rob. Well, it's worth mentioning even that this um, my understanding of Thatcher and the EU um, was the no 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 hmm. speech. No, <laughs> no no. Um, but you know, I I didn't really realise that she was so pro Europe, and she only sort of got cold feet when she. She actually got, gets cold feet when she thinks that there might be a possibility of the social Europe. She got cold feet when she died as well. And when she died, yeah. Um, 
But she, you know, she. I think she was becoming. I mean, I, I don't want to turn this into a sort of psychiatric examination, but <laughs> I think she was. You know, she was becoming a little unhinged and paranoid towards the end of her political career. I think she overestimated. She might have swallowed some of Jacques Delors' left-sounding rhetoric as well. Mm. Um, but of course, she was also an, a, an enthusiastic supporter of the Single European Act mm. and of the Single European Market. Um, which created, you know, the, the 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 market that would be dominated by market forces, and by market forces, of course, in reality, we mean monopoly forces. Mm. We mean the giant corporations. She was all for that. I think it was first of all she probably overestimated the possibility of any kind of real social Europe. I think as well there was the question of sovereignty and the issue of sovereignty, not so much on economic matters, but on political and military matters. Um, there was, There's always been a section of the Tory party that has believed that um, a united Europe could become an alternative to Britain's alliance with the United States, with US imperialism, um, and who thought that um, we, should, uh, we should not go too far with European integration because they didn't want to see the European Union becoming a serious rival mm. to the United States. Now, if that was a remote possibility at one time, again, that has ended, because, first of all, a lot of the the new uh, member states of the EU and Eastern Europe are very pro-US and pro the alliance with the United States. And secondly, the European Union, as a result of the Lisbon Treaty, has now explicitly adopted alignment with NATO policy as part of the common foreign and defence policy of the EU. And I think as well there were a series of European court judgments that uh, that Thatcher felt impinged a little on the freedom to carry on in Britain as she had been carrying on. You know, even any concessions, there was, there, there was some social legislation in the EU, there was some environmental legislation that did impinge a little bit on the rights of big business to do as it pleased. And Thatcher came to believe that she was in such a strong position in Britain that the right, the neoliberal right in Britain, was now so strong it didn't have to bother with these concessions. You know, they had defeated the working class movement, the labour movement in Britain, who needs the European Union to force us into making any concessions at all? So I think that's how that division grew up. And it continues. There's a section of the Tory party today, the Brexiteers. They believe that even the minimal social legislation of the EU is too much of a concession to the Labour movement and to ordinary people and to working class people in Britain. And therefore, they have this uh, equally, I think, deranged idea that uh, if we're not in the EU, we'd be able to create this free market nirvana for big business in alliance with the United States, a sort of offshore Singapore and so on. I don't think that's true either. A lot of Remainers believe, you know, that the far right in Britain is really that powerful. I don't believe it for a second. Well, why, why don't you believe that? Just to... Um, because first of all, we have seen we have seen a shift. We have seen a little bit of a shift to the left. 
um, in Britain over recent years. Um, that was reflected, of course, in, in the rise of Corbyn to his position in the Labour Party. We saw the reaction against austerity with the launch of the People's Assembly and some big demonstrations. You know, the whole battle against austerity, in terms of the battle of ideas anyway, uh, I think has seen terrific progress by the left. So I certainly don't believe, you know, that um, that the, the far right will sweep all before it in a Brexit Britain. I don't think there's any basis. In fact, the immediate result of the Leave vote was not the complete triumph of the far right in Britain. It was the disintegration of UKIP and the rise of Corbyn and the left. That was completely the opposite to what the Remain many Remainers were predicting. But Unfortunately, the campaign to sabotage Brexit, in fact, has uh, helped to revive UKIP. I mean, UKIP and Farage, Nigel Farage, they were dead in the water a year ago. They were virtually finished as serious political that is, forces. Yeah, that's true. But you, you do have um, them kind of rebranded now as the Brexit party, don't you? And they're doing like polling really, really well. And, and what has enabled all of that, as I say, is the fact that um, between them, uh, big business, um, the mainstream right in Britain, and those liberals and left of centre people who have uh, all these illusions in the European Union still, uh, it's their attempts to delay and dilute, and if they can, to sabotage Brexit altogether, that's breathed new life into what was almost a political corpse a year ago. Um, uh, you know, if it hadn't have been for that sabotage of Brexit, I think Farage and UKIP would have remained where they were. They were on their way into the political grave. We'll just briefly talk about some of the the treaties because these are the things, I mean, the, the minutiae and some of the language used around Europe, I have to be brutally honest, I've always found it quite confusing and, and quite dry and boring. Um, luckily, you, you don't, Rob, so this, you've explained oh, it. You've explained The treaty on the functioning of the European Union. <laughs> Rob eats uh, seven my, crackers a day. It's, just it's my bedtime reading. Um, reading. But you talk about, you know, night, night two, we've got the Maastricht Treaty. Mm. Um, and the Maastricht Treaty is... Would you say this is the start of the next phase of the EU after the after the EC? You said it. The Maastricht Treaty is the start of the European single single European currency, and then a tight monetarist financial policy, competitive market economy. These things, a European Central Bank. Yeah. These things start with with Maastricht, and then obviously you know, the left, Tony Benn, mm-hmm. Communist Party, urged to reject the the, the Maastricht Treaty. So what what happens with the Maastricht Treaty? The, well. The, the Maastricht Treaty undoubtedly took forward to a huge extent the economic integration of, uh, of Europe um, as a capitalist free market economy with monetarist uh, uh, rules for public finances written into a, what's become a European constitution with the independence of the central bank and of other member states' central banks uh, written into um, European law and... Uh, you know, in that sense, it took forward the European project enormously. Since then, we've had a whole series of other treaties. But the Maastricht Treaty was interesting because, again, we were denied a referendum, even though it meant major changes in the whole economic and financial structure of the European Union and of member states. Um, we were denied any kind of referendum at that time. Uh, I think Plaid Cymru held the balance of votes in the House of Commons, but they were bought off by a seat uh, on the Council of the Regions and so on. But that's, I suppose that's another story. But following that, well, l- let's learn a lesson from history. In France, 
the Communist Party led the campaign for a referendum in France on the Maastricht Treaty. They managed to secure that referendum. They almost won it. But having not quite won it, the leadership of the French Communist Party then decided to give up the struggle on the EU and said, we have to accept now, France is always going to be in the European Union. There's nothing more. Let's concentrate on changing the European Union. Well, the French fascists, the French National Front, must have thought all of their Christmases had come at once. Because now the French Communist Party, which, like the left in Britain, had led the anti-EU movement, handed the whole issue over to the right and the far right, who then were able to wrap themselves in the French flag, forget all of the class reasons for opposing the EU and all of the internationalist reasons for opposing the EU, reconfigure all of that and make a nationalist appeal for opposing the EU. And of course, ever since then, we have seen the remorseless rise of the National Front in France and the continuing decline of the Communist Party in France. There's a lesson for the left there because we did something similar. When, when the Labour movement fell for the blandishments of Jacques Delors, um, the, the result has been that it's the right that is now primarily identified with the cause of British sovereignty, of independence, of self-government, of democracy, and of opposition to the EU. And I think that's been a, a disaster. Uh, it's strengthened the right, it's given the right, the far right in particular, a whole basis on which to appeal to patriotic sentiment and to nationalistic sentiment. So I'm afraid, you know, we're in real danger of continuing that mistake, perhaps not on quite the spectacular scale that happened in France. But I think that, unfortunately, we've handed the issue to the right in Britain, uh, the far right in particular, and they're making the most of it. You've then got the 1997 Amsterdam Treaty. Mm -hmm. um, this includes the Stability and Growth Pact, which has yeah. become quite famous more now. Monetarism, um, more monetarism, yeah. And the Stability and Growth Pact demands limits to government fiscal deficits, um, debt of 3% and 60% yeah. of GDP. Yeah, um, And as you said... Borrowing can, cannot exceed 3%, yeah, 3%. now of, uh, of government expenditure and debt cannot ex can can three percent of GDP and and uh, public sector debt cannot exceed sixty percent of GDP. So as a you know jolly and hat again you know why is that a bad thing you know surely you know should we really be having fiscal deficits and debt? Well, there and... are times, especially when interest rates are low, historically low. There are times when it is very much in an economy's interest and a country's interest and the interests of workers, of ordinary people, there are times when it's worth borrowing in order to invest, in order to invest strategically uh, in infrastructure, in public services, in productive industry, in manufacturing in particular. But of course, all this runs quite contrary to the monetarist philosophy that was embedded in the Amsterdam Treaty. And the, and the point is this, you know, uh, outside the EU, Governments are elected, and they're elected on a manifesto, and um, we can elect a monetarist, a government with a monetarist policy, we can ex elect a government with an expansionist policy, we can elect a government that says, no, we're not going to allow freedom to the Bank of England to do what it likes with interest rates, or we can elect a government that says, we're going to make sure that the Bank of England manipulates interest rates in line with our policies, in line with people's interests, putting full employment above fighting inflation and so on. The point is that governments can change those policies. 
inside the EU, and particularly inside the Eurozone, those monetarist policies are written into constitutional law, you know, which is quite different from policies that and laws that could be simply repealed by one government and reinstated by another, amended by this government, scrapped altogether by another government. It's like the capitalist, the free market economy. The open market economy is named five times in the fundamental treaties of the European Union as being the economic basis of the European Union. Now, I know we have right-wing governments here that believe strongly in free markets and market forces, but it's not written into the British Constitution. You know, it is possible for governments to come in, as we would hope would be the case with a, a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn. It's quite possible for governments to change those policies. But in the European Union, these are now matters of constitutional law that can only be repealed by changing the fundamental treaties of the European Union, which requires the unanimous consent of every member state. That's a quite different situation to be in. That's being locked into a capitalist jungle. And as, um, and as you say, I mean, every government now has to submit an annual convergence programme to the EU Commission, which actually sets about how it's going about implementing the deficit reduction um, strategy to to achieve these sort of targets. You then got the treat- well, update oh, update there. Right, okay. In fact, Britain has now been exempted. You know, by grace of the European Commission, it has to be said, mm-hmm. Britain has now been exempted from that annual procedure because the austerity measures of the Tory government, the fiscal austerity measures, uh, have brought Britain's borrowing and uh, borrowing down closer in line with EU targets, or at least promises to do so in the future. But yes, there is a whole system for ensuring that governments maintain policies of uh, of uh, tight money, of austerity, of privatisation, and when they don't, they come under enormous pressure from the other uh, states and from the central institutions of the European Union. Okay, so you mentioned you know that there are mechanisms in place to ensure that national governments within the EU sign up to the stability and. Um growth pact and there are sort of ways of discipline in countries that don't that brings us neatly on to talking about various episodes mm. where countries sort of deviate from the required sort of standards um thinking in particular of you know greece spain and more recently italy again you know what happened in greece is something the government of syriza is not something that i knew a lot about until relatively recently i read uh, ian bruff's article authoritarian neoliberalism which is mm. really compelling it argues that you know the eu is essentially bullied, you know, it, it sort of used punitive measures to um, to bring the Greeks back into line because their economy dared to, or, or rather the left-wing government dared to try to deviate from these um, demands as a way of sort of rejuvenating the, the Greek economy in the interest of the Greek people. So can you tell us a bit about what happened there, Rob? Well, um, the, Greece's problem was, um, was in some respects the same as a whole number of member states eventually faced which was the financial crash and uh, the policies then to bail out the uh, the banks and the, in fact the whole financial system um, uh, as we saw in Britain as had to take place to some extent in the United States as well but also in some of the countries of Eastern Europe where they were already in quite a weak position because their governments had um, incurred an increasing amounts of debt to finance um, uh, different public expenditure programs, although really public expenditure programs that were largely in the interests of ordinary people. So, uh, you know, the, you, you had a number of governments that were heading for insolvency, 
uh, they prioritized the bailing out of uh, banks, but then they found that they increasingly they couldn't afford to sustain the repayments on the borrowing that they'd undertaken in order to, to bail out the financial system. So in the end, from about 2010, a number of countries were in such dire circumstances that they turned to the European Union um, to see if any assistance would be forthcoming. And the so-called Troika, the European Commission, the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund got together and agreed that they would bail out a number of European Union member states, not least because that would ensure that those governments could meet their commitments to repay loans they'd had from German, French and British banks in particular. So again, it was it was really indirectly bailing out the Western European banks this time. Um, but wasn't Greece when it joined uh, sorry joined the EU it was well aware that uh, the depth of their debt problems but I think um, the EU kind of fiddled the, well, fiddled the accounts uh, Gold, so it could Goldman join Goldman Sachs the chief yeah, financial yeah, right. advisors to right wing Greek governments helped them to fiddle the figures so they would qualify for membership of the eurozone of course that was the equivalent to putting their country's neck in a uh, head in a noose by and large anyway. Um, the Troika uh, agreed that it would provide um, bailout money, but at a price. And the price um, in, uh, in Cyprus, in Portugal, in Spain, in Italy and in Greece was that those, the governments there um, would cut back further on public spending, particularly social and welfare spending, um, and that they would uh, cease um, public support for services and uh, industries in the public sector and in fact in some cases they should agree to sell off public assets uh, industrial assets financial assets and so on so the sweeping programs of austerity and privatization was the price that governments had to agree in order to qualify for assistance from the troika now in some cases uh, the cuts that were being demanded by the Troika were so severe and sweeping that even right-wing governments in Italy and Greece said, well, you know, we're not prepared to go that far. The result was that they came under such enormous pressure from the EU, from the Troika and from the financial markets that would not take up any more government bonds uh, that those governments were removed in Greece and in Italy and they were replaced by so-called technocratic governments, mm. nice polite word, in other words, unelected governments, yeah. imposed by the European Union, headed by former leading figures in the European Commission, bureaucrats, lifelong anti-socialists like most most of the chief commissioners have always been. Sad to see um, uh, Berlusconi go, wasn't it? <laughs> well, well, that, no that, more that was um, every cloud, bunga bunga parties. Every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, they had to carry out these policies of sweeping, in, in the case of Greece, not only sweeping cuts, but the wholesale privatization of almost every industry that was in the public sector and of um, many public services and so on. So these have been punishment beatings demanded by the Troika, but within the Troika. Even then, Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, was shocked when she saw what the what the the two EU institutions were demanding in terms of austerity and privatization she thought they were so harsh there was every danger they could produce a strong counter reaction nevertheless the greek government the syriza government collapsed uh, 
uh, folded completely in order to stay in office. They gave in entirely in the end to the to the EU demands um, with all of the misery that's been inflicted on the on the Greek people ever since. I, uh, I heard, um, I can't remember what uh, country it was. It was quite a small uh, state, but the austerity measures Im- implemented it um, on it by the EU was so severe it caused like fifty percent of people to like leave. So like can, they, can they ended up like paying things off like uh, a bit quicker than they thought they would because well, everyone just there, went. There have been, I mean, similar policies on. Things might have been Belarus. Yeah, similar policy. Well, the, Belarus is, is outside the. Oh EU. no, what's Belarus but, then? Uh, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, similar policies were imposed in, in a couple of other countries as well. But you know, the the main the main uh, sufferers were were Greece, uh, Cyprus to quite a large extent. Mm. Uh, and Ireland at one time, um, so so this really should have blown the cover of the European Union as some kind of humanitarian uh, setup that has the interests of ordinary people at heart. Not at all. It had the interests of the banks and big business at heart, well, which has always been the case. A lot of people don't. I'd say simply don't know about it. Um, and then we had like a minor Twitter beef on our. Um you know, the work experience child who comes on and argues with everyone. Um, yeah. With and it turns out this guy's like a minor ninety celebrity, Terry Terry Christian, is it? Oh, is he? <coughs> anyway, oh, that. Well, only some kind of DJ. Yeah, something, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And um and it it was interesting and, and quite illustrative because you know even if you're not entirely convinced by Lexit, uh, you know I would say people who were you know who were critical of the EU would say, well look what look about Greece, that's a bit dodgy, and it, but his response was fairly. Um, typical and he was like well you know the greek that's the greek government's fault you know for getting in debt and the eu helped them out and that's kind of like and and i actually was trying to find this um article by yanis varoufakis mm. who was the, the finance, the finance, finance minister, minister yeah. of syriza at the time and is now just like worldwide celebrity and he just bikes say, around a, uh, a ball, the a world ball, a bald icon going around giving like economics <laughs> lectures but you know, and he he's, he actually wrote an article. I met him. He wrote an article. I think it was in the Guardian, actually. Um, and it said, you know, Greece is like a debtor's prison. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah. A bailout. It was, um, <laughs> you know, it was. Well, um, firstly, it wasn't Syriza that ran up. Uh, yeah. the, the debts. It was the previous right wing. Had uh, I mean, like, the debt like spread back to like the early nineteen hundreds, like nineteen ten. I don't know. I don't know. But like at one point, I think after World War Two, Greece uh, was part of the um, uh, group of countries that. Uh, helped agree to just forgive Germany's debt. Oh, potentially. Yeah, in the fifties, and then you know, but sixty I mean, years but, later. But there's fundamentally this way of thinking about things where people literally see stuff like that and country to country torn apart look, and say, "Well, the, you shouldn't have gotten the debt." The point is, the the, yeah. main, the main beneficiaries of of government borrowing that was not sustainable uh, in those terms. The main beneficiaries were never the ordinary people mm-hmm. of Greece. Uh, they're just the ones who've, who've who've had to bear all the burden. It's just and, Angela and, Merkel. And the bailouts have not been not of the ordinary of people of Greece. It's been the banks mm. who have been bailed out. Um, so you know, I think that people need to be clear about that. Well, I'm sure if I said the same person, um, you know, the same person would probably be against austerity in this country mm. because you know, you know, nurses and doc- you know, ordinary people didn't cause the crash. So why should we pay for right, it? Exactly. But yeah, when it comes to Greece. Oh well, you know the government should have gotten debt, but you know, as you said, Nate, mass emigration mm. from Greece, you know, mass unemployment. You know, people's lives have, have literally been ruined. Well, there's a lot of suicides um, in Greece, wasn't there? Like I an mean, epidemic in, in, in Spain. I think there was um, the government was forced. It was a massive, um, in particular, 
um, mass evictions were carried out mm. um, of social housing in order to, I don't uh, um Yes, we've seen all these different types of reactionary policies, which, by the way, many right-wing governments in Europe have, all, have been perfectly prepared to enact. Mm, they didn't need the European Union uh, to compel them to do it, and they haven't been forced to do it by the European Union because force wasn't necessary. However, those countries that haven't been prepared to abide by uh, EU rules and have... Uh, had to turn to the EU in desperation, have found that the strings attached really are, uh, you know, their, their, their strings around the throat. This brings us to our fundamental question, Rob. So <laughs> why do you want to leave the EU? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, because, because um, you know, I'm a socialist um, and uh, I would always prefer to fight on the territory that is most favourable uh, to that great cause that I believe in. Uh, I mean, an Irene Bevan, uh, who was very much against Britain joining the European common market, by the way, he said um, a capitalist jungle is not made any more acceptable by being made bigger. Um, if we were to, and there's more of a prospect of this now than there has been for many years, if we were to elect a left of centre government, a left-led government, it will face very powerful enemies. In fact, the campaign to even prevent such an election victory will be ferocious. We haven't seen anything yet. Um, uh, and so it's going to be a big enough struggle getting that kind of government elected, building up the kind of mass movement that is necessary to get that kind of government elected and to defend that kind of left government, to keep it on course, uh, to support it against its powerful enemies. That is going to be difficult enough why we would choose, given an option of getting out, why we would choose to do that from within the European Union, where that government would be enmeshed in all kinds of laws and treaties and institutions, um, cases taken to the European Court of Justice and all the rest of it. Why on earth anybody on the left would imagine that that is more favourable terrain for fighting for um, socialist advance utterly escapes me. And connected to that, actually, and John McDonnell recognised this uh, a couple of Labour conferences ago, if we were to get such a left government elected, we would see all kinds of attempts to undermine it. We would see capital flight, we'd see an investment strike and so on. Now, such a government is going to have to be able to defend itself. It may well have to move to control capital and the flight of capital out of Britain. It may well have to take control of the Bank of England, uh, impose interest rate policies and all kinds of things. Now, those at the moment, that such an approach, taking those kind of measures, would run completely contrary to the rules, treaties and institutions of the European Union. But even if we get through that, and that's what we would have to try and do, to get through that period of sabotage. The whole point of having a left of centre government is so that it can enact all kinds of policies. Uh, investment in infrastructure, investment in public services, prioritising full employment. That may in include periods of uh, borrowing at fa relatively favourable interest rates, taking key strategic industries and services back into public ownership, ending the super-exploitation of migrant workers and using them to undermine pay and conditions and collective bargaining, um, fundamentally reforming VAT, 
subsidising key industries if necessary, protectionist measures temporarily to defend the existence of a steel industry, all of the kind of policies that we might need to have from a left Labour government and that we would need, um, many of those are all fundamentally in contradiction to the treaty provisions of the European Union. So some of the policies and programmes of the Labour Manifesto, which you say are in direct contravention of EU laws, would be to establish a national transformation fund to boost infrastructure investment with extra government borrowing. And for example, you say that's incompatible with Treaty of the European Union 3, sorry. One, two, three. Uh, that's central the people's bank credit. quantitative easing that John McDonnell has talked about as the shadow chancellor, which is flatly um, outlawed by the uh, by one of the two fundamental treaties of the European Union. Establish a national investment bank and regional development banks to support small businesses, cooperatives, research and development and innovation. So that's in the Labour Manifesto, and that contradicts um, 106, 107... So, which is the rules and state aid. Actually, the state aid issue is um, a really interesting one because on social media, the railways are the, are the, are the mm. is, is, is always the sticking point because I will say, well, you want to nationalise the railways and utilities, you know, gas and water, socialism, I guess. But people would, you know, and people say, well, how can you say that's not, you know, allowed when you've got state-run railways in Germany and France no, and, and I, other I think, countries. I think, unfortunately, some on the left who uh, oppose EU membership, I think, you know, it doesn't help our case to overstate it. You know, it is a fact that uh, nationalisation is allowed at present uh, under EU law and public ownership of industries and services is allowed under EU law. But what is not allowed are a whole number of policies that you would want to apply to those industries and services in the public sector because they would contravene laws, the competition rules of the EU. Um, they might involve discrimination against uh, against non-domestic participants in that particular market, might run counter to the right of establishment whereby any company from across Europe has the right to establish anywhere else in the European Union. It may run counter to controls on the export of capital so that you redirect investment away from property and cheap labour and cheap resources around the world into the kind of development that we need to see here in Wales and here in Britain. Um, It's what you might want to do and would need to do with public ownership that is actually outlawed. But there are no moves afoot to impose, for example, the, uh, the British model of breaking up the railway system of uh, hiving large parts of it off, effectively privatising it, subjecting it to market forces and so on. I mean, that is now pretty well advanced as far as the railway industry with the introduction of the fourth railway package that's coming very soon. Which, by the way, French railway workers in the CGT went on strike against Mm. because they know that the fourth railway package will mean the breakup and the partial, at least, privatisation of France's relatively successful and relatively cheap and relatively efficient uh, nationalised railway system. I mean, the, the, the Article 3 of the Treaty of the <coughs> European Union, you know, number one, interestingly, you know, it says the Union's aim is to promote peace, its values and the well-being of its peoples. Number two is the Union shall offer its citizens an area of freedom, security and justice without internal frontiers, in which the free movement of persons is ensured in conjunction with appropriate measures with respect to external border controls, asylum, immigration, and prevention of combating of crime. 
Number three, this is the interesting one, the Union shall establish an internal market. It shall work for the sustainable development of Europe based on balanced economic growth and price stability, a highly competitive social market economy, which as Andrew Gamble makes clear, social market economy is neoliberalism, neoliberalism. Um, aiming at full employment and social progress, and a high level of protection and improvement of the quality of the environment. It should promote scientific and technological advance. That's all guff, isn't it? It's all propaganda and guff. The reality is that under pressure from the European Union and from its big business supporters, labour rights, trade union rights, workers' rights are being whittled away in many of the member states of the of the EU. As for the balanced and peaceful development and all that kind of stuff, how can that be the case? We have huge levels of youth unemployment in many of the EU member state countries. We have large-scale migration of workers who can't find work. I mean, do we imagine that all of our Polish friends who come to settle in Britain, I see no nothing wrong with that at all, but do we imagine that all of them were happy to leave Poland, wanted to leave their families behind, wanted to leave their friends and their local communities behind? No, they've done it out of desperation. They need work, they need to find work, they need to earn money and send it back to their families. We have seen these big migrations, we have seen whole areas of member state countries in serious decline decline over a long period of time. This is just pure propaganda. How anybody could look at the, the different economies in the European Union and imagine that this is the case. And even on the free movement of people, don't forget, this is about inside the European Union. Meanwhile, the European Union has been raising the barriers against people from outside the European Union. I'm bragging about it. Enormous pressure on countries that formerly had quite liberal regimes in many ways in in terms of immigration from the rest of the world. There's been great pressure on those countries, Netherlands, the Nordic countries, Italy, Britain, great pressure to raise our barriers. It's fortress Europe that's been created. And then, of course, there was the... There was a dirty deal done with Turkey in 2016, whereby those desperate people, fortunate fortunate enough to reach the shores of Greece, are rounded up and dumped in camps in Turkey. And in return for incarcerating them, we pay Turkey an enormous amount of money in order to keep them there. And Turkey is now even stopping people inside Syria who want to try and get to Europe by putting them in camps there. Uh, I mean, the whole idea that the European Union is some wonderful internationalist humanitarian project, at the same time as we have seen these barriers go up against people from elsewhere in the world, is nonsense. And of course, that's one reason, by the way, when I was campaigning against the um, European Union in the referendum uh, in 2016, very often I was sharing platforms with leading members of the Indian Workers Association, of the Bangladeshi Workers Council and so on, who also oppose the EU because they can recognise a white imperialist fortress Europe when they see it and which prevents their families from joining them. It prevents the the uniting of their families from the Asian subcontinent and that's also the case, of course, with families from the Caribbean and the rest of it. One of the interesting things about migration and immigration, I mean, I won't necessarily get into the the issue here. It's it, when people talk about immigration and they, and they talk about um, oh, the NHS is run by hmm. immigrants and things like that, and, and or you know, my builder is Polish and these things, and and yes, on absolutely, these are you know pe- people rubbing along is fantastic. But as you said, I mean, 
migration in many ways is based on the underdevelopment of like accession states and things like that and and those countries need their skilled workers there and the experience of migration is traumatic of having to leave your country to find work is not a, a it's not a good thing i mean we have a debate in wales about you know we've got a generation of people who have to go to england to find work hmm. um hmm. You know, it would be a, a stupid argument, really, for people we, in England to go, well, this is fantastic because we've got all these Welsh people moving to London. Isn't that great? Mm. Whereas, you know, the reality is we, we need them back in Wales. Well, that's that's those things are the consequences of allowing capitalist free market forces to let rip. And the point is that governments need to have the powers and the resources to invest in their own economies to keep those... Uh, they're in work who want to stay. I'm not saying people should be imprisoned in their own countries. People will want to travel and work abroad. Absolutely fine with that. We can do that. We don't have to be in the European Union for that to happen, by the way. Um, but the problem is that the European Union has been EU membership and allowing this capitalist jungle to spread across Europe, written into the treaties of the EU, has meant that the many of the kind of policies uh, and, the, and the financial policies that would allow governments to invest in their economies and to build them up, uh, that has all been dismantled and outlawed. So, um, you know, the European Union is not providing stable, balanced economic development in many parts of the Union, and especially not in Eastern Europe, uh, that allows people to have a genuine choice as to whether they want to work in their own communities and their own country, or whether they want to travel to work. Rob, do you want a hard Brexit? Uh, I think I think we need to be free of all of the single market rules and provisions. Uh, I think we need to be free to negotiate mutually beneficial trade deals. Not particularly, certainly not neoliberal trade deals with the United States. That's something the European Union wants to do, by the way. The European Union was responsible for TTIP oh, and, uh, yeah, with TTIP. Trump. And in fact, the European Union is now in exploratory talks with the Trump regime to reinstate some kind of TTIP free market agreement where corporations can take governments to court, as the EU agreement with Canada now, now allows corporations to take uh, governments to court. Um, so I want to see us. I want to see a future government in Britain, especially a left and progressive government. I want to see it completely free of EU restrictions, so that it can carry out progressive policies, left-wing policies, and negotiate mutually beneficial policies with third-world countries, with China, with other countries around the world. I think regaining sovereignty uh, is going to be absolutely essential if we're going to have that kind of government here in Britain. Do you think, would it not lead to chaos, though? I mean, <clears throat> let's think about the, the trope about not just the ports at Dover and being backed up for miles, it would crash the British economy. You know, people are you know justifiably scared about things like, oh, the uh, diabetes medication is not made in appropriate amounts in, in the UK and people are going to be starved of their insulin. And also, you know, for, for what about the companies that are threatening to leave? You know, what happens when all the foreign direct investment from Europe pulls out and the people involved in the supply chain in Wales, like Airbus and things like that? Well, I would ask as well about the rise of the far right and that knock-on effects to the BME community because, you know, they are getting strength. Well, firstly, of course, in terms of, let's, let's let's take the last point first, you know, the rise of the far right. I'm afraid the rise of the far right has been far more significant uh, in other states of the European Union than it is in Britain. And in previous generations um, in the UK. Yes, yes. And, um, 
you know, we now have extreme right-wing and even fascists in government in some European Union countries. Now, I'm not saying we turn our back on that. I'm not saying we shouldn't be part of international efforts. And certainly the Communist Party uh, uh, has very close links with left-wing and anti-fascist and communist organisations across the European Union and much further afield. We shouldn't turn our back on that. But I don't think we should run away with the idea that Brexit is going to turn Britain into some unique some unique playground for the far right and the fascists and so on. Um, I'm afraid it's the, it's the impact of European Union policies that has played a major part in, in creating the breeding ground for fascism and so on. I don't think Britain is seriously in danger. We have fascists, we have racists, we have racist attacks. I've spent 40 years and more in the anti-fascist and anti-racist movement. We've always got to be vigilant, vigilant. We've always got to combat it. We've got to unite to combat it as well, by the way, whatever our views on the European Union. But let's not run away with this anti-Brexit propaganda that here in Britain we're on the verge of fascism or that a vote to get out of this big business EU uh, somehow is going to put us on the slippery slope to neo-Nazism, which is, you know, what The Guardian is arguing this morning, for goodness sake, drawing parallels with Weimar Germany in 1930 and 1931. Utterly. Some people are completely losing all sense of reason about this. No, uh, we've, we've got a far right. I'm afraid the sabotage of our democratic decision in June 2016 has undoubtedly um, given elements of the far right um, some some openings um, to to carry forward their message and to complain that uh, the people of Britain are being cheated of their of their popular sovereignty. Unfortunately, that is true. That is what's happening, and um, you know it is undoubtedly helping to revive the fortunes of the likes of Farage and uh, UKIP and so on. But I don't accept. I don't. I don't accept that um, uh, that uh, we're on the verge of of fascism and the far right and so on. Sorry, you. you there was another part to your uh, point. There. No, that was it. I mean, it's just. I mean, obviously, that there's there's been a lot of catastrophic oh, sorry, investment, talk about the, um, capital fl- uh, investment. For yeah, example. I mean, people. I mean, people. I think people are right to be. You know, people. People have been. People are scared about what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of you know catastrophic language used by the Guardian by. Um, well, by everyone, let's face it, and you know, people are people are people are scared that you know their families are going to be ripped apart. You know, the European citizens are going to be like deported, and you know We've that medicine is not going to be able to get into the UK. And we have already enshrined in legislation, um, uh, and it's part even of the withdrawal agreement that uh, Theresa May has drawn up. We're not going to be booting anybody out. You know, people who've got people who've been established here in Britain are not going to be expelled. I mean, there's just this is all. This is all ridiculous scaremongering. Um, the free movement of capital means that we've already had factory closures in the South Wales valleys as uh, as uh, so-called entrepreneurs and multinational corporations have decided to transfer their investment to Spain and to Poland. And, of course, they're perfectly free to do this. They've picked up the government grants uh, and they're off. And there's nothing we can do about it for, for as long as we're in the European Union. So there's always the possibility that capital can um, withdraw investments, can move somewhere else, can boycott a particular country and so on. Um, I think outside of the European Union, at least we would have uh, government and state power that could implement some of the policies to combat that. And again, all this stuff about the ports of 
Dover. The chief executive for the Dover uh, and some of the other ports um, in southern England was interviewed quite recently on the television. He made it very clear. We can cope. We will cope. It's not a problem. The, the same has happened to the director of the ports uh, on the other side in Calais and Le Havre and so on. They're all saying, what's everybody getting so excited about? You know, we'll manage. We'll be able to regulate it and so on. The whole thing is being ridiculously hyped up. Similarly, availability of medicines, uh, supply of food to the supermarkets. This is just, you know, this is just absurd. And we had it all during the referendum campaign. If you remember, the immediate consequence of a Leave vote, we were told, was not only that UKIP would sweep to power, Nigel Farage would be Prime Minister, the left would collapse, completely the opposite happened. We were also told there would be an immediate recession, unemployment would soar. By 2028, the Treasury said, every household in Britain will be £4,200 worse off on average. All nonsense. None of it's come to pass. You know, it's scaremongering. Similarly with the whole Irish border question and so on. Who is going to reimpose uh, infrastructure on the north-south border in Ireland? The Republican the Republic of Ireland government says it never would do it. The Northern Ireland government says it would never do it. The Northern Ireland main parties. The British government has said it would never do it. The European Union have said it, they'll never do it. So who's going to do it? In fact, there was a very informative um, report recently produced uh, towards the end of 2017 by the Constitutional Affairs Committee of the European Parliament, Smart Border 2.0. They commissioned uh, um, a former head of the Swedish Customs Service to look into what arrangements might be possible in Ireland after Brexit um, to ensure that frictionless trade could continue across the border. And he outlined all the measures that could ensure that that would happen. He spelt it out in black and white. So all of this is just to frighten people into abandoning the vote that, that was cast in 2016 for popular sovereignty, for the return of powers, full powers of self-government, not only to the parliament in, in Westminster, but to the national new powers 64 new powers for the National Assembly in Wales, spelt out in great detail. Well, I'm in favour of bringing those powers back from Brussels to Westminster and Cardiff and, and Edinburgh. And the strangest thing of all is that it seems to be the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, Plaid Cymru and the Greens, who want all of those powers to remain in Brussels. Rob, absolutely fantastic. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Nathan, shout-outs? Uh, I can't think of any, so shout-out to Kurt Russell, as uh, always. Standard one. Yeah. Yeah, shout-out to my friends and family. Um, okay, thanks very much for Any shout-outs to you, Rob? Oh, sorry, Rob. Yeah, any shout-outs? Um, I'm trying to think how many of my friends and family may still be awake. Um, so <laughs> they've, they've, they've heard, heard all before. Then. They've heard all this before, <laughs> so I, I won't embarrass anybody by, by you know, making any shout-outs. Thanks so much, guys. Right. Chat to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Yeah, well, I'm going to go build my own theme park with blackjack and hookers. In fact, forget the park.